The presenting sponsor for On Education is Classcraft. We're excited to announce Classcraft's new story mode, which makes it easy for educators to harness the power of stories. Episodes 1 and 2 of Season 1 are ready for you and your students to play today, and it's completely free. To learn more about Classcraft and the new story mode, simply visit classcraft.com slash oneducation. I heard someone go, no, 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 but it was like the, it's like Charlie Brown and the teacher talking at the front of the classroom, right? Welcome to On Education, part of the Education Podcast Network. I'm Mike Washburn. And I'm Glenn Irvin. Friends, we have an awesome pod for you today. We will give you a preview of the Impact Education Conference and talk about a cool new coding game called Rabbids Coding that was just released. We spoke to Ubisoft's Maxime Durand about Discovery Tour Ancient Greece. And our second guest this week is educator and author J.C. Maslick. So Blizzard's in the news. Yeah. Blizzard is the maker of World of Warcraft and your favorite game, Hearthstone. Yes, and uh, I'm playing Ooh. a lot of I'm playing a lot of WoW again somehow. Um, I I think that WoW the the classic WoW came out and kind of sucked me back in. I think that that's exactly what they intended to do. Hmm. Um, so I'm back playing kind of the normal retail WoW too. Um, and you're crushing Hearthstone as you do. Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah, definitely my like, favorite. I saw what level are you at now. I've reached level four this month already, so that's pretty good. That's this month already. Yeah, yeah, because they they every single month you start have to start over basically. Uh-huh. So, yeah. So uh, getting down, well, you're level four levels. on October the eighth. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. So it's a possibility to see if I can get the legend. <laughs> it's just Dude. that it's a game with so many people, so many, so many people that are amazing. So it's really, really difficult to get to that legendary status like what is your estimate of the percentage of people that are legendary like what is this are you in like that like what stratosphere are you in glenn Irvin, as a hearthstone player now are you in like the top five percent no 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 now top when you get to level five or better let's just call it that um but not to legendary is probably i would say the top 10-ish percent of the all the players because a lot of people just play it on occasion you know just yeah. drop in and out whatever it might yeah. be um and then you have uh, you know professional actual players and they quickly make it uh their ascent towards the legendary status uh every single month so then there's some of us peons who try to get to that uh, number one rank. And then after you get to number one, you get to the legendary status. So it's super difficult though to do it. Uh, it's a combination of a lot of skill and then a lot of luck too. So it's, a, it's sure. just like any card game. I mean, as far as, you know, when, once you get into a certain level, everybody's playing with the same cards. It's a matter, matter of uh, can you outskill them? And then also can you outdraw them? I mean, that's really what it ends up being. So it's crazy. So, how much do you want to talk about this Blizzard controversy? Um, I think it's interesting. Uh, it I, is interesting. Especially because uh, Blizzard is such a ginormous company. And Huge. there's so many games. The biggest. 
that are underneath their umbrella. So one of them is Hearthstone. One of them is the World of Warcraft that you were just talking about, which has all kinds of different uh, versions. And it's one of, like you've talked about, uh, one of the most uh, played games out there yeah. that exists. Uh, Hearthstone, I think, is the most popular card game. It surpassed like Magic the Gathering. And so it's crazy that it has done that. Um, so a lot of things under its umbrella. And basically... For those of you that don't uh, watch the news of esports news or those kinds of things, a, a uh, player uh, who is a resident of Hong Kong, um, after a tournament and was being interviewed, kind of a post-game interview, if you want to think of it that way. Yeah. He's a yeah. professional Hearthstone player. There was, and people might be laughing right now. They're like, "What is that?" You know, professional video game. The prize pool for just this tournament was $350,000. So this guy won a good chunk of it. I can't remember which where he placed, but it was significant wherever he placed that and he's a he's a top level player. And at during the interview he he made a comment about freeing Hong Kong. Expressing they, support for Hong Kong. Yeah. Exactly. And, and uh very quickly uh Blizzard put out a statement and and obviously let him know that he his winnings for that tournament had been um, vanquished or relinquished. They forfeited, they yeah. back, they forfeited, and that they also suspended him for one year of playing. So just imagine he's a professional Wild. player. So it's like sports in general, just like uh, Colin Kaepernick. It's the, it's it's a it's on the similar type of of level, and and uh, he's being interviewed in a post game interview. And then he makes a statement about uh, in support of Hong Kong, and so Blizzard has a specific some specifics in their contract for the players for the professional players that you can't actually speak about these, or it seems like any controversial topic. Like they have to stay. Yeah, I think the language is anything. that if it's anything that makes Blizzard look bad, essentially, yeah, yeah. So it pretty much it limits their ability, you know, as far as. Uh, to be able to say have any opinion at all in that type of <laughs> forum, um, and so it's now started a a uh, giant controversy. I mean, a lot of people follow this game. A, a lot of people make a living just streaming sure games, yeah. not just being professional players, but they stream this game on Twitch and uh, you know post their videos on YouTube, and this is. Uh, their livelihood is is playing this game and having people watch it yeah. and um it's it's crazy it's the it's the intersection of of what's happened in in athletics also is now being pushed into into this other arena into the esports world um and i i think it's really interesting and i, I it'll it'll be interesting to see whether they budge or not and see if they actually change any of their things uh and, and and we'll see what a crazy situation i mean i i said it we we got into like a huge twitter discussion literally a half an hour ago uh which was <laughs> which was pretty funny um I, I i guess my hot mediocre hot take on this is that i don't know what we were expecting i mean activision blizzard is notorious for being like profit, dividend, shareholder value centric. They've gutted whole studios after games have been released and said, okay, well, thank you. And now you're unemployed. Like they just don't give a damn. 
about about people no they at all they don't care at all um they are the most like especially the activision side so you know blizzard so there's two companies here there's it's it's activision blizzard they merged in um i can't remember when it was probably around 2010 uh maybe a little bit earlier than that um into into the two um but activision specifically has been notorious for being just ruthless with the way that they handle their companies, their subsidiaries, and their focus on strictly on it's why they, you know, they churn out Call of Duties every year that are just absolute garbage, most of them. Um <laughs> they are. Um, but they know that like they they just slap the name Call of Duty on the damn thing and sell it and it sells a million a couple million copies. Hmm. Um and so they they do it because they know that that's the formula that works in some cases. Um, I don't know why we were expecting anything different from them in terms of like these. This was not the company that we should have expected to, to stand, um, stand up and, yeah. and be like, no, we're fighting this. They're they're not the South Parks of the world that you know that you know get get slapped on the wrist by. Um, China and then write a whole letter to China that just basically says, you know, shove it kind of yeah. thing. Like <laughs> and that that's that's the types of people that that will start this sort of thing on, on this side of the of the world anyways. Not the if we were thinking Activision Blizzard was going to be anything different than what they are, which is a giant corporate, you know, entertainment machine. Um, you know, we were we were looking for the wrong people. Um, it is unfortunate but it's that's literally the world we live in. I think the 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 punishment was incredibly harsh. Big time. Uh, a year a year suspension for someone who makes their career and their livelihood doing this is that's insane. insane. But there's been other companies who have stepped up and I have actually retweeted their things and said you're we're not only going to pick up what you lost as far as in that income for that tournament. We're giving it to you. We're also going to enter you into our specific thing. So other card companies are like, come play our card game. And so it's a, it's a nice way to be able to go and, and uh, uh, maybe be able to get people to switch games. Shout uh, out to you know? John Fallon, who's going to be yeah. the commissioner of the first world Gwent league. <laughs> <laughs> so, so things are about to get crazy um, for me and for us. Um, it's like, I've been kind of, in a little bit of a lull the last three weeks because I've been home and it's been nice. Um, that's over uh, effectively next week. Mm. Um, just I just sent a tweet out. It's funny today because I was taking stock of all of the places that I'm going to specifically, but like it's it's nuts. Red Deer, Edmonton, Halifax, Niagara Falls. I'm going to China for two weeks. Speaking of China, um, we're going to uh, Minneapolis, Minnesota, and then Winnipeg, and then I'm going to uh or sorry to miami and then to winnipeg it's crazy Uh, we're going everywhere really 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 excited to talk a little bit about impact education conference um we've obviously mentioned it before but this is this is your jam like this is your this is your home right buddy you're you're probably pretty jazzed up about this this is always my favorite conference by far, just because, I mean, it's home. It's also the first conference that I presented at. So right. it was my, 
my jumping off point. I actually remember doing a poster session about Minecraft. Um, and that was actually my my only entry as far as in the the, the first time that I went into uh, to what was called Ties uh, previously and now Impact Education. And and from there, it's just been awesome. It's been growing. Uh, last year, I was in this video playing Despacito. Uh, there was, uh, I've done pre-conference sessions with students uh, and then I've done all kinds of different conferences, uh, things, but really it's just like a family there. Uh, the people who run it are amazing. And then the people that we are able to bring to Minnesota and to the greater kind of Midwest uh, is just what an amazing uh, lineup each year uh, coming in December in the worst time of the year. I, <laughs> well, it's not the worst. Actually, February is way worse. Uh, so December is still pretty bad. Uh, but pretty bad. we get these amazing people to come and and uh, present and then connect uh, with the audience. And uh, man, it's just fantastic. So we should talk. I wanted to specifically highlight our pre-conference workshop. Yeah this time so we're doing a lot of other cool stuff so um before we get to the pre-conference i guess we're doing live shows with um specifically some 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 big live shows with jordan shapiro uh who we've had on and uh, michael cohen who we've had on multiple times so there'll be live shows with those two um and then um we will have jimmy cassis and angela myers on the podcast um, on a normal episode of the podcast coming up like real soon in the next couple weeks, uh, we'll be starting those. Uh, so those are really exciting. We're pumped about the, the Jordan Shapiro one specifically, right? Like For that's sure. the, the one that's, we're really geeked up super, about. Super excited. I love Michael Cohen too. I just yeah. love they've decided, obviously it, it's a rebranding of a conference, but they've also decided to take some risks. Yeah. It's kind of revamped the way that they're doing things including, you know, uh, if you listen to the episode where uh, Cindy was describing that they are giving books, books away, away instead of instead of like your normal kind of uh, uh, loot that you get <laughs> at a yeah. conference. Um, and, and this kind of Jordan Shapiro, Michael Cohen sit down with an audience there is going to be fantastic. I think sure. opening up the conversations because they both are just, I mean, phenomenal people, but the topics that we're going to be talking about are so relevant for us as educators, of course, but just as people in general too, to be able to have these conversations and it's going to be awesome to have it live recorded. Boom. It's going to be fantastic. We'll need to step up our interviewing skills. Oh yeah. Well, we're working on those. <laughs> <laughs> the pre-conference workshop is happening the Saturday. Yes. Um, in, uh, during the, in the afternoon, I think we are the one until I think it's three 30 or something like that. Uh, in the afternoon on the Saturday, we're doing a pre-conference workshop on podcasting. So wow. we've talked about doing this for a while. Um, we've got it. We've started an outline Well, you've started an outline. I, I have not contributed as much as I should to it yet, but I'll get to it. Oh. Um, <laughs> But we're we're starting this this pre conference workshop and it's it's gonna be awesome. I'm I'm really excited about talking to educators about um everything that the, so that they could leave. Like the takeaway is you should leave. You're gonna leave with a podcast. Absolutely. Either something that you want to release yourself, mm -hmm. or this is the big thing. So I don't know if we've said this before yet. Oh, no, you haven't. So 
Might as well say it on this episode. Okay, cool. (laughs) So the takeaway, the very final takeaway of our pre-conference workshop is one of two things. You're either going to leave with a published podcast, released out, delivered on Apple, on all the platforms. That's one way that you could leave this. The other way is if you feel like this is kind of a one-off, but it's still something you're really proud of, you can give it to us. And we're going to go through them and we're going to pick a few and we're going to put them on our feed. Yes. So we're going to release your episode of whatever it is that you did on the on education feed. Just, just crazy. Cool. It's going to be awesome. I just love the idea of, of being able to, like you just said, someone that goes to a workshop maybe is, is really developing a set of skills so that they can go ahead and use it with their students. But yep. then, but for themselves, they're like, I'm not probably going to do this, you know, uh, uh, as far as for myself, but I will for sure teach this to my students. But that day you might as well put together an awesome podcast episode yep. and then hand it over to us and we'll choose a couple men and, and, and be able to amplify your voice and be able to get you, you out to everybody else and it's going to sound awesome because we're going to teach you how how to make it yep. sound awesome and then it's going to be whatever your thoughts and your voice and 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 whatever you decide to go ahead and bring to it so super exciting we're going to talk about interviewing speaking of interview skills we're yes. going to talk about editing glenn's going to go over all of the intricacies of sound editing that that glenn glenn edits our podcast if you didn't the secret, know the secret sauces i'm going to share them that's it. Um, I will talk a little bit about, you know, scheduling people um, and and booking guests. And even I'll go through kind of the business side uh, if people are interested, because that's part of it. Um, Certainly the social aspect, like like on education was built on Twitter. That's absolutely how we grew. Um, So, you know, our Twitter game is pretty good. Um, both individually and on the podcast side. Um, so that's a big part of it as well. We'll talk about equipment and gear. Um, we'll share what we use, and then we'll talk about different types of things that you can use within different budgets. Um, and again, the the takeaway, I, I love going to a session that you leave with, with something, something. Yeah. that you've either done or that you leave confident. The thing about crappy PD is when people leave because they're not, and they're not confident that they even learned anything. Yeah. Like I heard someone go, no, 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 no. But it was like the, it's like Charlie Brown and the teacher talking at the front of the classroom. Right. And they don't leave feeling like they did anything or got anything from it. They hurt. They, maybe they were inspired, but they certainly didn't, you know, nothing's coming out of this. Well, no. this is completely different. You are literally, we are not letting you leave unless you make an episode of something. Yeah. And it's going to be freaking great. I'm yes, very, very excited about that. Speaking of exciting, so this is kind of Ubisoft week because we're going to have uh, uh, an interview with Maxime Durand uh, from Ubisoft in a, in a few minutes. But Ubisoft is in the news for another kind of cool education game I, I think they're they're maybe stepping their games up here a little bit it's kind of crazy a free educational game intended to teach players how to code called rabbits coding um came out today october the 8th 
Uh, yeah. I have not played it yet, but I am literally as soon as we're done done this, I'm going to go on to UPlay and download it on my computer. Um, the The summary is players will attempt to clean up a spaceship full of rabbits. I guess rabbits are some sort of creature, <laughs> right? They're rabid. <laughs> yeah. By issuing coding commands to a mind-controlled rabid. Okay, there's rabbits everywhere. Oh, yeah. Dropping sausages while... Okay, cool. Okay. Where rabbits can see them, more rabbits, motivating them to move. So... Cool. I like this. It kind of reminds me of as I was reading this, Mike. I don't have yeah. you ever played a uh just a phone app game called Cut the Rope? I don't know I if you've so. ever heard of this one. So Cut the Rope is a puzzle solving game, basically. It starts off with a super simple puzzle, and I mean literally you're trying to cut a specific rope and then something happens and basically you're freeing something or you're capturing a, a, a thing, whatever it actually might be. And what's amazing about the game is that eventually you start solving so many puzzles that you get to a point where you're like, your brain is going crazy where most people think that video games or a lot of people believe that video games are mindless. Well, this would be a game where you could, for sure prove that that's wrong because it is a puzzle solving game where you have to actually analytic like analyze different things and then try out some things trial and error of all kinds of different things till you finally solve the puzzle that's what this is reminding me of with the combination of learning how to issue code commands which is interesting like a uh, how they embedded that in so i'm interested number one it's free <laughs> You already got my attention. Mm-hmm. Number two, it's it's a combination of solving puzzles and coding. Freaking fantastic. So hopefully this uh, this is awesome and we can start sharing it with our not only our audience here, but with our anybody that we actually know so that everybody starts using this. Because again, anytime something is free out there by a legitimate company like Ubisoft, it's exciting. Yeah, so this game seems... Very, very cool. People should definitely check it out. Give it a look. I'd be interested in um, hearing what people think. It, it's free. So what do, what do people got to lose? Head on to uh, the Ubisoft website, download Uplay, uh, which is their their client for PCs to download their, their marketplace, I guess. Um, and download this game. And I'd love to get some feedback on what people think about this this coding game for kids. It sounds kind of interesting um when we come back we'll be talking to someone from ubisoft we'll be talking to ubisoft's maxime duran about discovery tour ancient greece so stay with us on education is brought to you by taylor ed as teachers meeting the needs of each and every student in today's classroom is time consuming complicated and overwhelming TaylorEd makes differentiation in math effortless through curated resources, smart student grouping, and student insights beyond proficiency. Sign up today using the promo code ONEDUCATION and receive three months on us. Visit taylor-ed.com for more information. ONEDUCATION is also brought to you by Fidgets. Fidgets are interactive USB sensors that support all major programming languages that make physical computing easy. Fidgets keep the emphasis on coding while increasing student engagement. And the best part is that you can get started for free right now. Simply go to bit.ly slash fidgets on education to get your introductory kit that includes a free sensor worth over $50. 
That's bit.ly slash fidgets on education. Ubisoft is one of the largest, most popular video game companies in the world. Uh, Assassin's Creed, for example, is one of their most popular game series with over 140 million copies sold across almost two dozen games at this point. The series is in the pantheon of all-time great franchises. So when they do things, people pay attention. So when Ubisoft decided to create Assassin's Creed Discovery Tour, starting with their Egypt tour based off Assassin's Creed Origins, they raised the bar for game-based learning and turned heads. The Discovery Tour team is back now with Discovery Tour Ancient Greece, based off of Assassin's Creed Odyssey. We've had a chance to play it, and let me tell you, it's absolutely incredible. Joining us on the podcast today is producer and historian for Ubisoft and part of the team that made this happen, Maxime Durand. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. So, uh, Maxime, being someone who taught game design in my computer science classroom, uh, I like to talk process just a little. I, I think it's super interesting um, to dig into the nuts and bolts of this. Was it always in the plans to make a another discovery tour after the Egypt one? It, the Egypt one was incredible, and I think it was really well received. When did you start? I'm curious when you start working on it in earnest, and um, is it a dedicated team? that works on uh, discovery tour? Is it something that just you pull people on to and off of at various points in the development process? I'm, I'm curious about uh, your decision-making uh, for making the game itself. Well, first the discovery tour is, is, is a hard project. It's a, it's a dream project that came from the team. Um, so we, we've had this idea for many years now, uh, personally, ever since I joined Ubisoft back in 2010, I was, I always dreamt about, creating something that could be useful for classrooms. So we had that first opportunity uh, between 2015, 2018, we've created the first discovery tour, Ancient Egypt. And, um, and since we launched that first edition, we were really eager to receive feedback to understand how people were using it, um, either uh, educators, schools, museums, but also uh, gamers that are usually playing Assassin's Creed and that were receiving that new, uh, that new adventure to expand their, their own experience of Assassin's Creed. So we've been paying attention. And to be honest, the, the second discovery tour wasn't planned at that moment. Uh, it was really a matter of, of reception. We realized that, uh, it was, I mean, it, it had a positive impact. Uh, it, the reception was far beyond also what we were expecting. So. I don't know. Maybe we were expecting like half a million users. And at this point, we're uh, almost at 2.4 million users Amazing. with the first discovery tour. So it became very apparent that uh, it had its place in the Assassin's Creed franchise and we should do another one. So um, all in all, it took about over a year to create that new discovery tour, Ancient Greece, with a dedicated team. That's amazing. Amazing. Uh, so I'm a history major. I, I lucked into teaching computer science, I always say. And, and I tell anyone that I can and uh, people who listen to the podcast all the time would hear me say all the time that I wouldn't be a teacher if it wasn't for the game Sid Meier's Civilization. Uh, absolutely wouldn't be a teacher at all. I'm incredibly passionate about teaching history and I love playing history games. So I'm curious, how important do you think it is that we find engaging ways to teach a subject 
that has been called boring by so many people. And do you think that Discovery Tour Greece and Discovery Tour Ancient Egypt help solve some of those challenges? Well, I think, I mean, in, 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 in all ways, people do things in life by, by passion, hopefully. Uh, it's not always the case, but most of the time, I mean, when we decide to go on the way, like going to studying something, whether it's history or engineering, there's, there's always some form of passion behind. Um, I'm, I'm pretty much the same as you. I've, uh, I've always appreciated history, but as a kid, I never thought I would necessarily make a career out of it. Uh, but video games, movies, uh, uh, comic books, TV series, all of these were, were enlightening to me because it, it made history very accessible. Uh, it made me realize that history could be alive. And so with time, I mean, just like, I guess, just like many kids, I, I, I discovered museums. I discovered that a passion could become uh, much more. It could become a career. Um, hopefully not everyone will become historians in their life. Uh, <laughs> otherwise, I mean, we might have some problems in finding them, everyone a career. But there is there is a passion for history. I think that is uh, that's part of everyone. Uh, but reality is that m- maybe the way that it's they learned it in school uh, is maybe not the way that is accessible for everyone. Um, yeah. Just like books are not necessarily the, the the best medium for everyone. I think there's there's a vast array of mediums out there that are interesting, and I think the discovery tours is just an addition out there. Uh, that has great potential because of its uh, immersive aspects that is very unique. So, I mean, we're just adding one new tool to that, to that, uh, again, to that fast, uh, 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 spectrum of, uh, of, of tools, of mediums that get people excited about, about the subject of this history. So the details in this game are just quite amazing. Uh, it's absolutely the difference maker when compared to, let's say, other type of educational games. So I'm sure you're hearing a ton of positive feedback about the visuals, but you also really nailed the informational component to the game as well. So it's really a complete package and it shows. So how important was it to the team and to you to feel that this was accurate, both in the visual sense and in the information that was being presented? Well, it has to be said that the Discovery Tour is, is a, a parent of Assassin's Creed in the way that we inherit the game map that has been created for, for, for Assassin's Creed with all the artistic choices that they've made, with all the technological uh, uh, constraints that they had also to create that game. So right. as a developer, we're aware of the limits that we have. We are also aware of the potential. And when creating the Discovery Tour experience, uh, we knew we had to adapt. We had to take the map like it was because we would not have the ability to to change it. Uh, we could not make it more historically accurate. We just had to work along with what we had. So this is what we've done. We, we've been aware of our strengths, our weaknesses, and we've tried to build an experience. And we've tried to build a tool around this uh, where we're telling the, the most interesting historical bits of the past, at least the ones we're aware of. And we're also trying to tell what are the limits that we have in creating these worlds, such as the distance. So we, we play a lot with the distance in these worlds. They're sure, not yeah. real life size, for instance. And so we're trying to tell that we're trying to, to promote the fact that video games are also an, an adaptation, but it can be so interesting. It's awesome. So where do you see games like Discovery Tour fitting into education um, in, in terms of like big picture? Then maybe even like if you have any 
um, specific examples of where and how this is being used in the classroom. Who who is this for? Like, what's the target market for this? We've probably chosen the most difficult target. We try to please everyone. That's <laughs> that's about the worst you can do when you're making a video game, uh, because you you cannot you cannot uh, fulfill uh, a precise uh, niche or a precise need somewhere. So, for instance, when we developed the discovery tool, we wanted to be able uh, to to give a tool for high schools, middle schools, universities just in terms of education. And, and these are all very different. Every country is different. Every region is different. I mean, just in the United States, you've got 51 different educational systems. In Canada, there's like 12 of them. So everything is, is, is complex. So we try to understand that. We try to uh, find a, a middle point that could make uh, this tool interesting, even though it would not be perfect for one uh, typical age group. So We've tested it. Uh, the discourse was tested during development. It's, it's, we're still ongoing with uh, uh, discussions with uh, teachers, but also with professors in university. So the first tests that were done uh, before the launch of the first discovery tour were done in nine high schools. So the, the students were aged around 14 years old, uh, girls and boys. And uh, we were trying to see if they could learn with the discovery tour or would it distract them more than, than anything else. And so... Uh, we compare the machine versus the human, so the, the discovery tour versus the teacher. Uh, obviously, we're not intended to replace the teacher. We're there to add to their experience. But even when comparing the machine with the teacher, the students were still learning almost as much as with the teacher. So that was a very good first step in, in proving that it could be useful. But the way that we build it is, of course, that we we wish that teachers are using it in their classroom in addition to all the other tools that they're using. So let's say a teacher has a one-hour classroom uh, in middle school, high school. Uh, they can go into the, the class. They can task their students to play the, a, a discovery, one of the tours of the discovery tour. So let's say they're going to play the, the, uh, the tour on the Acropolis or the tour on democracy in, in Athens. And then in the game, I mean, playing the tour itself is not a big challenge. It's, they're going to have some a lot of information like they would possibly receive from the teacher. Uh, but then the teachers can task the students to do more. They can task them to take pictures within the game to show after that that they've understood the concepts, to have that discussion in the classroom, to engage them in talking about antiquity in a way that maybe would not have appealed to them as much uh, in another form. So this is one of the ways that, that it can be used in, in classrooms of that age. When we're talking more about universities and museums, uh, I think we're we're looking more to promote critical thinking uh, even further. So we're, we're hoping that students have already a lot of knowledge about these tempers that we're talking about, and that they can they can criticize, they can discuss, and think about the decisions that the, the developers have made. Uh, for instance, to to show maybe a statue that was bigger than than the size it really was back in the days, or uh, to show history in a, in a way that is complete, whereas archaeology and history only gives us small bits of information. So, so we're trying to please many different ways, and and this is complex, but we're really trying to achieve this. 
I was curious about um, you had you had mentioned um, something that that made me think about localization. Is this available in in many other languages or or mainly just in, in English? I'm thinking specifically like I'm from Canada, so so French would be would be an obvious one that this would would be interesting to be available in. How many how how localized is this? Um, uh, how localized is Discovery Tour? Uh, is it available in multiple other languages? Absolutely. So uh, both Discover Tour are available in 11 languages. Um, so nice. there's, I think, if my memory is correct, there's eight of them that are fully localized. So uh, uh, subtitles, menus, and sounds, all dialogues. Uh, whereas for the, uh, we also have three subtitle versions in uh, um, uh, Korean, uh, Mandarin, uh, Chinese, and uh, traditional Chinese. Simplified and, and traditional Chinese. So these add up to, in the fully lingu- localized languages, French, English, Spanish, German, um, uh, Japanese, and uh, Russian, and uh, Brazilian Portuguese, if my memory is correct. So all of this is available for the same price to all players. It's it's the same, and it can be changed in, in the, the flick of a second. So I work with educators, and... Um... One of the things they would actually be very interested in this, but I believe that they would need some guidance, some help. So, is there a a guide for educators like uh, to be able to use along their current curriculum? And what do educators get if they do actually purchase the discovery tour? So, first part of the question is no, we have not published guides. Uh, what we're trying to do instead is to uh, promote discussion. Uh, we've created a, uh, a digital forum up so far to engage teachers that are interested to discuss between themselves, to mm-hmm. get to know each other, mm-hmm. uh, to share best practices and, and guides. Uh, it's not perfect. We we still have to to make this more available. Uh, but reality is that we we're not the teachers. We're not the best to know how to uh, how to use it in all the different contexts. And, um, and so I, with working hand in hand, I think we can really achieve something. Uh, right now, what we're seeing is that many teachers that are using the Discover Tour are publishing. Uh, I believe, uh, in the United States, for instance, there's, uh, uh Brian Stottlemyre was in, uh, in Maryland. He's been using the Discover Tour last year, uh, with one console in his classroom. Yeah. This year he's, he's getting more, uh, I think computers or console. Um, my memory is not good here, but he's, he's getting a lot of material for his classroom so that students can play, uh, either solo or, uh, two students together on the same pod. Very nice. And I know he's, he's putting a lot of information out there on the internet. Uh, in Quebec, there's, uh, so we've partnered with a, a group that is, uh, uh, a pedagogic consultant for the government. They're called the RECI, R-E-C-I-T, and they publish everything uh, for free, open source on their website, where they've uh, put the five different tasks that they created around the discovery tour ancient Egypt. And so we're looking right now into uh, translating, into localizing all of their tasks uh, to help them uh, also uh, get this more accessible in other countries, for instance. So I think it's a discussion that it's ongoing, but we realize also that as video game makers, we're, we're very fast into creating new products. And in, in education, we, uh, we know that it takes more time to, to try it, to test it, to approve it. And we're, we're ready to go that way to try to help educators to get access to it and to take the time from the, to understand how they can 
best use it, for instance. So one of the concerns that I was thinking about as I was playing the game on my PC, which is souped up for gaming, is there aren't many schools that have gaming quality PCs or game consoles. So how much thought did you guys put into the system requirements and making the game accessible uh, to more than just like, for example, private schools with uh, larger budgets? It, it has always been a concern for us ever since we, we knew we wanted to do this. Um, reality is that we're creating a triple A AAA game that is quite unique. I mean, it's yeah. as far as we know, it's the only triple A game that's adapted out there for, for schools. Um, but it has a, its downside and, and accessibility in terms of hardware is one of them. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm looking much ahead to to be hopeful that the cloud gaming will, will be a part of the solution in the future. But in, in the actual moment, uh, the, the, the best that we could do was to create uh, a PC standalone version uh, because that was maybe the thing that was the most accessible for schools or the thing that they had the most in common compared, for instance, to a, a console version uh, where we don't have any standalone version. Uh, we're aware that this is not, it's, it's, it's still not uh, enough. Uh, there are a lot of public schools that are still using the Discovery Tour uh, out there maybe not as much as we'd like. So this is why for this new Discovery Tour Ancient Greece, we've also published uh, all the tours in a video format on YouTube for free in all languages. Uh, interesting. So it's not it's not the full experience, but at least there's something out there that they can use. And I mean, just the, the same way they could use a movie, for instance. Uh, so uh, we're, we're trying to, to do our part, but it's we're, we're doing something that's very unusual in the game development uh, companies. So we uh, it takes a little bit more time. It's, it's unusual for a game development company. It's unusual also for um, education. Like you're kind of breaking ground on on a number of different fronts, right? So it's uh, it's exciting, I guess, right? Absolutely. Uh, I'd say the, the first the first thing out there was to make this game happen, and then hopefully it would be successful enough that we would have more opportunities to to push further. And with, now with the the launch of that that new edition of the Discovery Tour, I think it's it's one best another big step that we're we're trying to make. Yeah. Well. Well. Listen. As to um. Well, I, I don't necessarily want to speak for Glenn, but as a, a dude who's made his almost entire career on games-based learning and talking about video games in schools, I mean, um, keep raising the bar, and and uh, it's 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 awesome. We were giant fans of this. It was exciting, uh, to see it come out. It was such a blast to play it. Um, and, uh, and it's, it's really quite something. So, uh, so you've done, you, you and your team have done an amazing, amazing job. Thank you so much. It's, it really truly means a lot for us. So everyone that was, uh, Maxime Duran from Ubisoft. Thank you so much for joining us, Maxime. Thank you. And see you soon. On education is brought to you by fresh grade. The reality for most classrooms is that besides open house and parent-teacher conferences, there's little communication and interaction between teachers and parents. FreshGrade Next wants to change that by bringing teachers, parents, and students, all together with a new set of tools for posts, activities, comments, and class feeds. Take communication in your classroom to another level with FreshGrade Next. To learn more about FreshGrade Next and sign up for your free account, visit FreshGrade.com. All right, welcome back to the podcast, everyone. 
J.C. Maslick is an author and a veteran principal. She'll be a presenter in the administration track at this year's FETC conference, which is accepting registrations now. Uh, thanks for joining us today, J.C. Thank you, guys. So why don't you give us a little bit of your background? You you shared a little bit of it beforehand, before we um, went live, but uh, give us the, the J.C. Maslick 101 if you can. Um, sure. I, I started my career as a classroom teacher. I worked in a pretty large public school system here in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Um, during that time, I taught mostly kindergarten and first grade and really loved teaching reading uh, at that level. And so I went back to school, uh, got my certificate uh, to be a reading specialist, and I did that work for about a year and um, it wasn't too long after that. Uh, I, I tell people all the time, I feel like I'm addicted to learning because mm-hmm. I was doing the reading specialist work and thought, oh, OK, I need to go back to school and learn something else. Uh, so I went back for my principal's papers. Um, I got a job as an elementary school principal uh, for 10 years in a wonderful elementary school. Um, I tell folks that that was probably the best job in the world. Uh, I just loved the community that we worked in. We had wonderful parent support. Uh, I, I just had tremendous teachers uh, that I worked with on my team, and, and it was just a great situation. Um, but, you know, that that educational bug bit me again, and I went back to school. I got my doctorate um, in curriculum instruction, and I thought, you know what, I, I want to spend some time exploring that. So for the past five years, I've been an assistant superintendent in a school district uh, about 30 miles northwest of Pittsburgh, and um, it's brought uh, some interesting challenges. It's been a, a great learning experience for sure, and um, just another extension of, of leadership and administration in schools. That's awesome. And you've written quite a few books. I have. Um, I, I owe a lot of that to actually a professor that I had in my doctoral program. Um, she was tough, uh, but I learned so much about writing yeah. that I just felt like it was something she just pushed me to get better. Um, and she would challenge us, you know, submit that to, you know, for an article to get published or, you know, yeah. submit a conference proposal. And, and I think the more that I did that, the more I enjoyed it. And um, I had actually been reviewing books for a pretty big publisher for a while. You know, they send manuscripts and you give them some feedback. And I liked that. And I thought, you know what, I, I have a story to tell. I, yeah. I mean, I think every educator has a story to tell. And so I, I shared it with them and they said, yeah, write it. Um, and so it's kind of, it's kind of been a journey since then. Um, I had a couple books come out this year. I, I was writing a lot last fall. Um, and I actually am just finishing up another one uh, with a colleague of mine, which it'll be the first time I partnered with anybody um, on a book. And so we're excited for a release, hopefully sometime here at the end of 2019. So it's unbelievable. As someone who's struggling to get the first one out the door, um, I'm impressed by how prolific you are. I, I was I was looking at it and I'm like, damn, this is this is impressive to say Thank the you. least is what it is. Well, um, you know what though, but I think if you I mean, I don't know what you're writing about, but if you are writing about something that you have a passion for, it makes it easy to tell your story. Um, yeah. And I think if it's something that is relevant to other educators, you're going to find ways that that resonates with other people. And um, I think that's sort of the rewarding part of writing as well. 
So, Jacey, one of my... I, I, I work in educational robotics and coding. That's kind of my, my wheelhouse, or at least my day job. And one of my favorite robots is the M-Bot. It's a, it's a blue robot that's it's kind of metallic. It's got metal components to it. But the reason one of the reasons why it's my favorite isn't actually what usually what people expect when I explain why I I love it because the students have to put it together they have to assemble it it comes in a box in pieces and I loved it I I used to get asked should we put it together for them and I'm like no I like freak out I'd be like no way that's the best part about this thing is putting it together I know you're passionate about stuff like this as well um, about kids learning by doing and by making and by using their hands so what it is what is it that you think makes that type of learning so so powerful well i i feel like i I am very passionate about stem steam maker education and part of the reason is if you walk past a classroom or a maker space or whatever kind of space or your dining room table, right? I mean, we talked about having little kids at home. If you see young people making, building, putting robots together, it is 100% engagement. You know, those kids are into it. They are determined to figure it out. Even if it means, you know, that, that F word, right? If, If they fail, and they screw something up and they tear it down and have to build it back up again. That's such a critical piece of learning. I mean, I think it always has been, but even more so nowadays. Um, And so I think a hundred percent engagement for me, you can't beat that. You can't beat seeing a bunch of kids like, you know, arguing about which piece belongs with what. Um, And and I love seeing that in classrooms. So I, I think that's huge. And another part, I really find strong value in is if you just listen in when that's happening, Mm -hmm. there's such rich dialogue that happens among kids. You know, sometimes I think makerspaces get a bad rap, like, Oh, they're noisy. They're messy. And who knows what those kids are doing in there. But if you just listen in and you hear the things that kids are talking about, you know, whether it's like, debating a a way, a route to take or which tool to use. Like they're activating the knowledge that they have and bringing that to the table. And that's awesome. For putting these robots together. It's, it's about like where the wires go and which ones get plugged into which ports and why you're exactly right. You're bang on. Well, and I think another one of the, the pieces that is important to me, and I go back to my days as, as a principal, um, I, I had a K through six building. And so, you know, large, large grade span, but we always had kids in our makerspace doing all sorts of things. And I loved seeing how it was accessible to every kid. I mean, a five-year-old could walk in and find meaningful tasks to work on. A 12-year-old can walk in and find something that appeals to them. I, I loved that it worked for our kids who you know, English wasn't their first language, but they found a way to do something with their hands in that space that allowed them to feel part of the learning community. I I can't tell you how many success stories, you know, students with autism, students with learning disabilities who just kind of found their niche there, whether it was coding or some kind of engineering or, you know, building with Legos. 
something that allowed them that entry point into the learning that everybody else was into. So, so I love the way that it really makes things more accessible to every kid. So JC, when teachers I work with hear the word makerspace, many of them think technology. Uh, you have this amazing quote that I loved. It says, some spaces have an emphasis on maximizing learning opportunities in technology, while others take a low-tech approach. Whichever pathway your team chooses, the priority should be on student engagement. So what are some low-tech approaches that you have found to be successful? Uh, so I'll give an example in my current school district. Um we have a junior high school building. Uh, it serves students in grades five through eight. And we had two empty classrooms. Um, you know, not much was going on in there. And we thought, you know what, let's make this a space where kids can get messy and build projects that maybe are big, too big for other classrooms. And we kind of just sat around and brainstormed what that could look like. Keeping in mind, we had zero budget. So, I mean, we, we didn't have the money to buy robotics or iPads or, you know, any of those things when we started. Um, we, we begged our custodians to paint for us. Um, you know, they painted the walls. They made the room look a little bit brighter. We asked for donations. Um, you know, we had a ginormous pile of cardboard. Kids can do awesome things with cardboard. I mean, you'd be amazed at some of the things that they can build, right? Give them some duct tape and cardboard and they're off. Yeah. Um, but I mean, we had parents who who donated broken toys. So we had a station where kids would try to fix them. Um, you know, we had the cardboard. We had uh, some some Legos, connects, building kinds of things. And we started out very simply, just providing the time and space for kids to come in and mess around with stuff. Um, hand tools, you know, hammers and nails, simple things that we we really got through donations. Um, and slowly, we you know, we got a little bit of grant money here and there. Um, we ended up, we had a green screen, so we were lucky to, to get an iPad. We started doing some things, um, you know, with TouchCast and, and other things like that. Um, and so it's grown now into something that includes a balance of both high tech and low tech, um, because I think not every kid not every kid wants to, you know, get out the hot glue guns, right? I mean, some kids just aren't into that. Just right. as not every kid wants to, you know, learn how to code using Scratch. So I think you have to provide a variety of options and, and kids will kids will show you real quickly what they're passionate about and, and you can really target your space to them. So, I mean, maker spaces are great. Um and having the tools and facilities to 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 build one up and uh, are, are awesome. I've seen I, I worked in private schools and was around a lot of private schools when I was in the classroom. And I've seen some just unbelievable maker spaces. Um, but, you know, these are expensive to like these ones that you always see. The ones you see on Twitter and Instagram are like fifty thousand dollar spaces. Right. Um it's it's hard to think about how you can stack up when you're just in your classroom and you're trying to inject kind of maker thought and the the design process and um you know this sort of thinking into just your normal classroom and i'm um, i'm hoping that there are some folks out there that are that are thinking almost the exact same way as me that they're they're like this all sounds great but 
how can I just do this in my room when I don't have, how can I, how can I inspire my kids to be creative and inject more maker learning into everyday classroom life? What do you think you would say to those folks that are listening that are, that are kind of wondering about that? One really good place to start is looking at the way you assess students or the, the, the way they show you what they know, right? I mean, I can give you a paper and pencil test and ask you to prove that you understand, you know, math computation or, you know, some kind of concept in biology or a so social studies period in history, right? Or I can give you an option to build it, draw it, animate it. Yeah. You don't necessarily need anything too fancy to just provide an option. Um, so I think assessing is one pathway to do that. Um, I, I will share, uh, had a book come out in August um, called Remake Literacy. And in the book, it it shares with you different ways within an uh, English language arts classroom that you can take the skills you're building in vocabulary and pair them with something that's hands-on. You know, I, I, I could ask kids to look up the words and write the definitions and make them memorize them, but I guarantee you that if I give them a hands-on way to draw it, create it, build their vocabulary words, that they're going to be a lot, it's going to be a lot easier for them to remember those words, use them in context, because they're going to have that tangible hands-on experience combined with the visual combined with the auditory, it, it's going to maximize learning for them. Um, there are also so many wonderful pieces of children's literature out there. Uh, I think there have been some great authors, especially over the last two years, who have written children's books, you know, that, that emphasize things like perseverance and the design thinking process that you mentioned. So sharing children's literature, which all great elementary teachers do that every day, I have some phenomenal middle school teachers who read aloud to their kids. And those books are such a nice springboard into making opportunities. And it doesn't have to be something that's big. It doesn't have to be something that's extra. It can be a small way that you have, you know, a corner in your room of some hands-on things that, that you mm -hmm. can incorporate into any lesson. Um, I think there are, you know, yes, I've seen those pictures on Twitter's that Twitter. There are magnificent makerspaces. But there are also little nooks in the corners of classrooms where teachers kind of stash away some some supplies and kids know that if that's a way that they can be helped in their learning, that that those tools are there for them as well. JC, I, I always uh, have a negative view of standardized testing. And as a instructional coach, I feel our teachers hyper obsess about them. And uh, that teaching to the test is is a real thing that happens in a lot of places. And so I think it's taken a toll on creativity in the classroom. So how can teachers work within the parameters of testing legislation, which is, isn't going to go away in their states or provinces and still give their students creative outlets in their classroom? And you've just shared a few different ways there too. Uh, but anything else that you would have for advice for people that feel like their plate is full because they are teaching this specific curriculum, whatever might be these outcomes. And, and they're like, I wish I had time for that creative thing. And it's like, no, that creative thing is, is the thing to be able to lead to that great learning, you know? So how can we make that shift? 
I just had a conversation with a teacher today. We were in a professional uh, development session and she kind of hesitantly turned to me and said, is this okay? Like, is it okay to do this instead mm. of, you know, what, whatever test prep she might've been doing. And it was a, we were working with iPads and it was something that was kind of creative and maybe a little out of her comfort zone. And I said, yes, you must do this. I said, this is the way that you're going to connect with all those kids in your classroom that the paper and pencil doesn't always work for. Um, and I get it. I mean, it is certainly a conflict that we've been facing for a long time. You know, we've been in that accountability age where we've been driven to believe that we are measured by our test scores. And part of the reason why I take ownership over this problem is I'm a leader and I'm calling out to other leaders to say, you have to give your teachers permission to step away from that and do the things that really matter for kids. Awesome. Give them, so, you know, give them those creative opportunities. Any experience that I'm asking kids to collaborate, to solve a problem, to create a product, those are all learning experiences that maybe indirectly are still preparing them for that test. It's still building quality skills that they're going to need not only throughout their schooling, but in their life. So there's probably some people listening who have never heard a superintendent talk the way that you're talking right now. <laughs> I'm telling you. I, and I have to say like, it's first off, it's amazing and refreshing. And um, how do you think that that filters down to the people that you lead when you're giving them the permission structure and the space to do the things that, I mean, we all know need to be done, but typically at the higher order of this, you know, this, the, these levels of education, they're not giving people permission to do this sort of stuff. They're saying, no, we, I mean, test scores, we have budgets, blah, 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 blah. Right. And those things matter. I'm not saying they don't, but there's ways to do this stuff. And it seems like you get it. And I'd love to know just, you know, how you think your role as a superintendent that's open to this stuff, how that translates and filters down to the people that, that you have to lead? Well, first, let me say thank you. I appreciate that. Um, I think it's so very important, um, which is why I like sharing that message with people. Um, it really starts with trust. Um, you know, I I could say it's okay if we don't have great test scores, everyone. And they're going to go, well, I don't believe her. She doesn't mean it. But if you ask the teachers that I work with how I spent my first year in our school district, they will tell you that at every single professional development, I started by saying to them, you have my permission to think creatively about how you're going to approach instruction in your classroom. You have permission to try that app or, you know, something you read in a, in a blog, try it. I don't care if you fail when you try that thing, whatever it may be, because I know you're going to learn from it and your kids are going to learn from it. And I think it took a lot of conversations and, and a lot of repeating probably on my part to say like, it's all right. 
And that first year, I mean, people weren't buying in. They they still weren't so sure about if this was really okay. Does she really mean this? Um, and, you know, maybe there were a dozen teachers who, who were buying in the first year and they thought, all right, I'm going to try. But she's, she's telling me to go for it. I'm going to take the risk. And I think slowly that built and people started realizing not only did it invigorate them in their teaching, but that their kids were kind of awakening into this new age of being innovative and, and, and working collaboratively with others and thinking about learning outside of the four walls of their classroom. So I think once people started seeing the power that came from it, they were willing to, to take that leap. Um, and I do, I, I think it, it means that you have to have leaders who understand that this is important. Um, I'm the assistant superintendent, and I am blessed to work with a superintendent who says, yeah, let's do this. And the fact that she and I have one common you know, vision to share with everybody, I think lets everybody know in, in our district, like, this is okay, and this is the path we're going to take because we know that it's important for our kids. And, you know, sometimes that means, that means we step away from the test prep for a little while and, and do something that maybe is a passion project for a kid or for a teacher. Um, and we have to be okay with that. So JC, we will see you in Miami at FETC. What sessions, or can you just tell us a little bit about your sessions that you will be presenting there? Yeah, um, so I'm ecstatic to be uh, one of the featured presenters, and I have a bunch of sessions, actually. Um, I'll be doing a, a hands-on um, session on remaking literacy, so we'll be digging into some children's books and figuring out how to infuse making into our classroom practices. We're going to do some engineering challenges in one of the sessions. Um, I have a session for administrators that's on the power of connections and creating a learning network. Um, so in the county that I work in, we have established a network of school districts and partnerships and corporations and universities, and we all work together to rewrite curriculum and create opportunities for kids all around hands-on things. You know, So for us, the, the manufacturing industry is really big. So how do we get kids to understand that that's a pathway that can happen through making? Um, so we'll be talking about that. Um, bunch of great sessions. I'm, I'm, I can't wait. Can't wait to go. That sounds amazing. So how do people get in touch with you? Uh, share your website, your Twitter handle. How can people buy those amazing books of yours? Give us, give us all of that info. Yeah, sure. Um, well, you can definitely pick up any of the books on Amazon. You can find out all of those there. Um, but if you want to reach out to me, you can find me on Twitter at uh, D-R-J-A-C-I-E-M-A-S-L-Y-K. Um, and you can certainly check out my website. It is steam-makers.com. Uh, and if anybody would like to email me, you can certainly do that as well. It's jcmaslick at gmail. I would be happy to communicate with anybody who has questions or wants to share ideas. I am always looking for new folks to collaborate with. Amazing. JC Maslick, thanks for your time today. Thank you, guys. Thanks for listening to On Education. My name is Glenn Irvin. My co-host is Mike Washburn. 
Uneducation is part of the Education Podcast Network. You can listen to this show and many others by great educators like Jennifer Gonzalez, Matt Miller, and many more by visiting edupodcastnetwork.com. Want to get in touch with us? Check out our website at oneducationpodcast.com. You can tweet us at oneducationpod. Mike is at Mr. Washburn on Twitter, and I can be found at Irv Spanish. You can find us on Facebook by visiting facebook.com slash oneducationpod. We're also on Instagram at oneducationpod. If you're enjoying the show and think others would too, we would be thrilled if you shared it with them. Please leave us a rating or review in Apple Podcasts or the Google Play Store. When you leave a rating, it gives our rankings a boost. This helps others discover the show. We want to thank our presenting sponsor, Classcraft, for supporting us. Check out classcraft.com slash oneducation to learn more about them. Thanks as always for listening. Stay awesome and see you soon.